Hey everybody, this is Alex. Today on the show, we are talking about a piece of long-form journalism that Natasha put together about a very, very interesting unicorn. Uh, we were very hype about both what she wrote and also just the great work that she did. However, parts of it are behind the paywall, so if you need to get over that paywall, we have a discount code, which is equity. I believe it's worth half off. But if you're broke, just email me and I'll see if I can find you a PDF of one of the pieces. Okay, let's go. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. This is our Wednesday show and we are niching down onto one of our absolute favorite topics, ed tech. But even inside that world, we're talking about a single company and to guide us through all that, we have none other than our own ed tech expert and general genius, Natasha Mascarenas. How are you doing? What a wonderful introduction. I hope I live up to it, but um, I'm doing good. I'm a morning person, so I'm fantastic right now. Yeah, the, what you don't understand is everybody who's listening, this is one of the earliest equities we've ever recorded. And as it turns out, I'm the only non-morning person here. Get ready for two chipper people and then me. And speaking of chipper folks, we have Danny Crichton, also a morning person over in New York. Danny, how are you? A morning person with allergies, but the, the Claritin's kicking in. It's the, it's the meth version of, of Claritin, not the normal version. So it, it's the good stuff. The good it's stuff. the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, if your Claritin doesn't have meth, are you even trying? But today, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the Duolingo EC1 that Natasha wrote for TechCrunch a couple of days ago. I just finished reading it right before the show because it's actually, what, 11, 12,000 words long, Natasha? Yeah. Did you read it in one setting or have you been reading it throughout the week? Oh, no. I sat down this morning and blasted through it. Oh, my God. I, Thank I, you I actually... so much. <laughs> That's exactly the reading speed we were hoping people would read it. <laughs> well, you know, I, look. All of us read a lot for a living, so it's not a huge shock that we can sit down and kind of consume a lot of content. But I did accidentally start on part four, and I was like, this is a really strange way to start this easy one. Like, <laughs> this is not the, the founding story at all. And then I realized I was reading it backwards, so I fixed that. Before we dig into a lot of stuff about Duolingo and how it approaches monetization, how it has this kind of weird tension and gamification, a lot of other stuff that I learned... Danny, you are still editing these easy ones for TC. Can you give us like a 15 second overview of what the idea behind this project is so people can kind of be up to speed about what it is we're talking about? And there's so much news going on, right? There's so much noise and equity. We try to provide a little bit of signal. And I think of the easy ones as how can we provide the most signal on the most up and coming companies in the tech industry? So I, I always think of it as, you know, we're way earlier than Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, those sort of cover stories. We're trying to cover the companies that you might have heard of. Duolingo is probably a way more popular one just because it's a consumer app. But like right. last week, we covered Clavia, we covered Tonal, StockX, Roblox, way before anyone actually cared about Roblox at all. I'm always trying to find these unicorn companies that are hitting their escape velocity period where, you know, maybe everyone in that little specialization knows about it, but everyone else has not. I'm trying to explain them and, and twofold, one, to understand the company, but more importantly, for founders, investors, and others. What's the value? What can be lessons learned from these companies? It's really funny you mention it like that, Denny, because I was trying to do a similar thing with my 100 million ARR and then 50 million ARR series. And I kind of gave that up because it wasn't that effective. But, you know, after reading, Natasha, your Duolingo EC1, I'm kind of sold on the idea. You know, I, I, I learned a lot about the company this morning. I could literally sit down and give you like a book report now about Duolingo, which I'm kind of proud of. Uh, I think we should I'm do confused. trivia. For Duolingo at some point. Like, that's how I felt when I was going through the process. I was like, ask me anything and I will answer. It's, it's, it's too early for trivia, but it's not too early for you to tell everyone why you were excited about covering Duolingo and how this company ended up being the right thing for you to focus on for weeks of work, you know, and, and nearly a small book's worth of words. 
I kind of lucked out with it having so many elements of a good story. But the initial reason I was interested in it is I think it was one of the few ed tech companies that had managed the feat of becoming a household name. Yes. So many ed tech companies today are trying to become what people think of when they think of virtual education or what they think of when they think of um, supplemental learning. But Duolingo became the thing you think of when you think of language learning. And I just didn't see any other companies becoming a crutch in that way. So let's talk about a couple of things about the, the business. There, there's three main themes you want to hit on, but I want to add one to the mix, which is this idea that the Duolingo like owl became its own cultural phenomenon. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, you know Gritty, the, the Philadelphia mascot that's like orange and, and very crass and loud and very Philadelphia, and it's become Re Regrettably, yes. <laughs> I don't actually, and I'm from New Jersey. That's so weird. Is it? That's yeah. okay. There's a Eagles? state border to protect you. Okay, there we From go. Pennsylvania. Uh, if you haven't <laughs> looked up Gritty and you're not in the United States and you don't know what I'm talking about, just look up Gritty. It's become okay. it's a mascot that became a meme, is my point. It, it seems that Duo the Owl, this little green, perky, owl-shaped thing, has become very important, so much so that people dressed up as mascots, Natasha. And I think that underscores your point about consumer awareness. But tell us a little bit about, about the Apple and how it's become key to kind of Duolingo's brand and, uh, and culture, if you yeah, and I just looked up Gritty and I feel like Duo is like the cute twin that lucked out compared yes. to Gritty. So Duo the Owl was actually a choice made by a design agency that Duolingo early on hired, but that soon became something that they used as a synonym for teacher. It'd be this really cute mascot that wouldn't be annoyed to see on the screen. According to the chief designer, Tyler Murphy, they wanted to have a single thing you think of when you think of Duolingo, similar to like the color scheme of Facebook or Instagram. And I wanted to bring this up, not just because I wanted to bring up Gritty and make general jokes at Philadelphia's expense, because boo Sixers, to me, the mascot is representative of the gamification and kind of like engagement loops, if you will, that Duolingo has really leveraged brilliantly, but brings in the tension between, you know, keeping users engaged and actually teaching them, which is a key thing that you explore in the EC1 gamification and, and essentially, you know, trying to keep users engaged, but also challenging them enough that they'd learn. Can you tell us a little bit about how the company has walked that, that fine line during its growth? Danny and I talked about early on in the reporting process for Duolingo was finding tensions that exist within a company, like why those notifications are more than just notifications. Duolingo early on decided to have a culture similar to video games. I think half the team at one point was playing Clash Royale. Side note, have either of you guys ever played Clash Royale? No, because no. I play good games. <laughs> because because I, I'm, not a, I'm not a child with his mother's debit card. Because I no. own a PC. Because I've seen a mechanical keyboard. Because I used to play Brood War. I can do this all day. Anyways, That's exactly what I wanted you to say. No, so Duolingo piggybacked a lot from video games three or four years into its history. I think one of the interesting things with Duolingo, you know, there's so much gamification and game dynamics that was brought in, but it's not a game. There's no boss battles in Duolingo. There are these concepts that are brought in that are mostly used for engagement, right? It's to get you back regularly, which is sort of key to language learning. If you're not doing it all the time, if you're just doing it once a week, it's very, very hard to make any progress in foreign language training. I, I think what was interesting is it wasn't just gaming, though. It was also dating. So, I mean, one of the th things that I learned from this process is that there were like three or four apps that they pulled in over the years that really like transformed the company. So one that you just mentioned was, what was a classic? Clash game? Royale, yeah. Clash Royale, that one. But there was an earlier game. Angry Birds. Oh yeah, Angry Birds. So you had Angry Birds, which by the way, also with Rovio, the, the company that owns Angry Birds, you know, also built out a huge mascot with its, I guess, Angry Bird. Does, does the Angry Bird have a name? 
it's just it's, it's a very angry bird. I think it's all we got. Uh, so but they also go. managed to make movies. Yeah. It's, it's a multi-platform entertainment experience Multi- as, as Disney. Oh my! That's what it's all about. But then here's the key piece. Then you get into Tinder, and Tinder is, has a huge influence. It borrowed this concept of making education free and using subscription to subsidize it. And getting at how close this is, you know, Tinder has Tinder Plus. When it was launched, it was six ninety nine a month. Duolingo has Duolingo Plus, six ninety nine a month. The core experience is free, and there's some acceleration features that were added that was, you know, gave you a premium experience. So in Duolingo's case, it was like getting faster lessons and being able to go through the curriculum quicker. In Tinder's case, it was finding faster matches. It would just kind of tell you, hey, this person matched with you if you choose to swipe right. So I think it's interesting that the two companies, radically different spaces, although both focus on consumers, but really were able to like borrow the model and reuse it in another context. Yeah, but I think, you know, Tinder wants everyone or as many people as possible to give it money. Whereas, you know, reading through Natasha's reporting about the monetization strategy at Duolingo, it was interesting to hear the CEO say, you know what, if you're on an iPhone 11 and you're in North America and you're learning French, I, I, you can pay me, that's fine. But if you're on a lower end device in India, I, I probably don't want your money. And so this ethos the company had for a long time, you know, through its history of, of not wanting to monetize, not wanting to have ads, not wanting to have subscriptions and so forth, like it had this you know, initial pitch. I think they found a great way to balance that for most people while letting some more wealthy users and more developed markets, you know, three or 4% pay for it. And that works out to nearly $200 million last year in booking. So it, it, it's a strange, it actually kind of works. And it's one of those like internet moments, but I'm kind of excited to see like how mass distribution, low marginal costs for more users, a freemium product can really bring something that, that does have an impact around the world for free for most people. I mean, I mean, this is the promise we were told about when it comes to the internet and mobile apps, and it's fun to see it actually play out. I think one of the most interesting parts of Duolingo's story is how getting to Alex, like you said, nearly 200 million in bookings in 2020 was just not an obvious route for it. You know, half of its life without really finding a successful monetization strategy. That for a long time was the biggest disclaimer on Duolingo from a venture capital and tech perspective. Now, okay, so so glad you said that. What's one of the best parts of the entire four-part series was the Layla Sturdy comment because if you know Layla, you know. Oh my god! That um, <laughs> uh, she just doesn't fuck around is how yeah. I put it. And so she says to the, the founder uh, Luis, right? Yes. Yeah, and she says, you know, like we're gonna lead this round, but there's no one bigger than Google Capital that you can con. So you better figure out monetization. <laughs> and apparently, that like verbal butt kicking was what got them into into gear. So. Apparently, all you need is a dressing down from your, your new lead VC and like your fifth round of capital, and then you can get off to the races. But I just love that anecdote because it's such a real like founder story. Totally. Well, I, I will say, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed, first of all, is the, the round sizes. I, what was the series A? I want to say it was like five. 3.3? Yeah. It yeah. Was like, yeah. It, it was, was a like couple million five. Bucks, right? It was the series A back 10 years ago. It's hard to <laughs> believe. And, and the, the best part was, you know, Natasha did an interview with Bing Gordon, who was formerly a Kleiner Perkins, KPCB, before it was dropped a couple names off front nameplate. What it was the things he emphasized was like this world where VCs didn't believe that just having users was valuable. And I, I think it's always amazing to kind of look back and think like 10 years ago, a company that had millions of users was like not interesting because no one knew how to monetize. No one knew how you were going to make revenue. This was even after Facebook's IPO. I mean, this was after well after companies that had figured out monetization and all these different strategies. So Duolingo, I think, was really in the wilderness for many years, despite the fact that the, the founder was a multi-time entrepreneur, had sold his last company to Google, was actually like an astonishingly strong. This today would be like an auto 40, 50 million dollar check for folks. And yeah. to go back in history and be like, you could actually invest in someone like this 
for $3 million Series A with, like, I'm sure a terrible ownership percentage that would be ridiculous today for most founders. It just goes to show how much the world has changed. VC would eat Louis up. And it did, honestly, back then in some ways, too. I mean, at least with that first check, Louis proudly told me that, you know, he got term sheets from every investor he pitched. He only pitched a couple. The little known history of Luis, I'll spend a second on it, is that he was actually the co-inventor of CAPTCHA and ReCAPTCHA, otherwise known as those prompts that you get when you log into email and have to type in words to prove that you are a human and not a bot. And so Luis had a really strong founder story. So I want to pivot us a little bit to uh, the future of EdTech, if you will, because, you know, I've learned more about EdTech in the last year than I have, in, you know, the previous 30 nearly 31 years of my life. So to me, I'm coming in late to this to this story, but I'm curious about what we think that the success of Duolingo could, could kind of imply for what's coming down the pipe from the ed tech space. So Natasha, you know, you cover the early stage of ed tech more so than any of us. Are there startups out there kind of aping what Duolingo has done? Or is this company actually kind of like a generation behind in terms of innovation in the ed tech space, and therefore we shouldn't expect companies to look like it moving forward? And uh, that startups are doing kind of new things, if you will. Duolingo gives me a lot of net hope for the future of edtech because it shows that you can create a free service that scales. The thing that I'll add, though, and maybe this is something I'm still kind of wrangling and will eventually write an op-ed about, is is the only bit of edtech that really can be venture-backable and scalable a tech company with an education twist, which I think Duolingo ultimately is, or can it ever be just pure education, learning outcomes? You know, Luis thinks that we're not there yet. He wants to be eventually. But I think that huge kind of dis- like limit and asterisk at Duolingo makes me feel a little bit weary about like what kind of ed tech companies and-, and what kind of outcomes we'll see going forward. The framing theme that crossed all four parts was there's this fundamental tension in education, right? You want consumers to keep coming back. You want them to be engaged. No one wants to fail. And one of the interesting things about real school is you're forced to go. Even in college, you're sort of like, now I've paid all this money, I better get that diploma, otherwise this was a waste of money. And so you go through these terrible experiences where it's like the test that is like the worst test on the planet. You know, in, in Duolingo, like I can churn at any second, right? Like I, do, I can just give up at any moment. I don't have to keep using it. And so unlike traditional school, you have a situation here where the, the company can't kind of push you to the edge, right? It has to kind of always be nice to you. And you, you see this in other categories, right? Like an exercise if you have a personal trainer, like your personal trainer knows that they can't put you all the way to the edge because then you're going to quit. And if you quit, they're not going to make money. The business is over. It's done. And so I think one of the big questions for EdTech in the next decade is, you know, how far can you push people? Because ultimately, in Duolingo's case, you can get to a low intermediate level in speaking fluency and reading fluency. I think it's equivalent to like, you know, high school level foreign language, which in America, if you're familiar with, not that great of a, a bar. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, in America, this... that's high proficiency, if you understand. Like, like right. the American expectation is so low that that's fantastic. If you can like not be racist in someone, someone else's language, 10 points in America. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it's actually 100 points these days we've 100 points in America. Uh, lots of gold stars for everyone. That's, to me, the hard challenge for the next 10 years. It's like a lot of consumer apps. Like you look at healthcare and mental health. You look at like meditation. You look at exercise. You look at education. How much can you push people before they churn? And that's a real complication for a lot of these companies going forward. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of, uh, of Codecademy, um, which is an online kind of code learning thing that I, I've tinkered with here and there. And, you know, just sitting here listening to us talk about what we have in the world, you know, we have meditation apps that are, even the free versions are pretty fantastic and, dis- and you can get discrete kind of help from that. You can learn how to, uh, most of a new language with, with Duolingo. You can learn quite a bit of coding for free with Codecademy. 
I think we forget occasionally this, the kind of like the embarrassment of riches that we have around us in the digital world. You know, I think it's, I think, sure, we should talk about how hard we can push people, how far can you really get into a lingo. But like, you know, 15 years ago, you're kind of on your own. You know, you didn't have this stuff. And we didn't have Google Translate that could turn any web page on the internet into whatever language you needed right now. You know, and I, 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 I'm excited about the future of ed tech because if this is how far we've gotten so far with mass distribution and, and the quality and so forth, I'm really excited about, you know, five years from now. Anyways, uh, Natasha, last word to you before we wrap up. Give us your final gut check on Duolingo and, and rate the project and Danny's performance as a, as a leader and editor from a zero to 10. Please. Okay, I'll start with Duolingo so I can think about Danny right after. <laughs> she has to think carefully about her words. <laughs> no, 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 I work for you. She doesn't. That means it's not a 10. <laughs> no, it's a 10. Oh. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll end with, I think, what Duolingo and what Luis thinks Duolingo's legacy will be and what it can mean for ad tech. I think more than even its efficacy and its ability to make you fluent, even though that's kind of the competitor's biggest critique and a lot of users' biggest critique, Duolingo ultimately has figured out a way to make education something you want to open every day on your phone for at least five minutes. And if that's painting some future of ed tech, to Danny's point, it might not be the future of outcomes and, and fluency, but it's, it's a future I think will help a lot of other ed tech companies get onto something new. And so similar to a lot of pioneers in a singular space, I think it'll open up doors for future companies. I mean, once it's public, because it, it's reportedly going to be so, it'll be, you know, yet another example of how the public markets value it, which means it'll definitely come up on our show again. Oh, yes. And then to answer the Danny question, I actually thought it might have, it would ruin our working relationship. And it was delightful to work with Danny Crichton, as always. He was great. And he did some great um, subheads. So definitely check out. The, the subheads piece. are some of my best of all time. I'm yeah, I think he outdid subhead. himself for, for the subheads. And <laughs> that was my I, contribution I, to the piece. Subheads. <laughs> no. and, and I'll just, I'll end on a final Danny positive note here, which is that Danny is a pretty, pretty darn good editor. And yeah. uh, I, I appreciate that because I write a lot and I often write things that should be edited down a little bit or like, I don't know, removed. And so it's good to have people around us who can, uh, who can pull us back from the brink when we're, uh, we're pushing the boundaries a little bit too far. So He's a dog connector. He connects the dog. He, he is indeed. Uh, Natasha, thank you for your hard work reporting. Uh, good to have you back on the news cycle, frankly, because I've been drowning uh, <laughs> <laughs> after your, your, your time off. Uh, Danny, thank you for all your work on your EC ones. And we are going to do the occasional chat about these on the show. Um, every month or two, we're going to bring up one that we find particularly interesting or that we write. Uh, but in the meantime, Equity is back in a couple of days with our news roundup. So stay cool, everybody. Godspeed. Goodbye. <laughs>